Father in heaven, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are a God of great grace for us. We're grateful to you that we are actually trophies of your grace, something that you can point to, someone that you can point to and say there is redemption in this world. Lord, every one of us is a target of your redemption. You focused it on us. You sent your son for us. So thank you for these things. Lord, thank you that as a people, as a church, you draw us together, you call us to you. And we're here today to respond to you, to acknowledge that you loved us first and we love you back. We ask you lead us through our time together today and draw us to you and to where you want us to be in our lives. I want to pray for our uh, women who are from Lakeside who are up at the girls' getaway, that you'll bless them and watch over them. And may life transformation happen for them this weekend. And Lord, for us as well. We seek you, we trust you. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. Amen. All right, have a seat, you guys. So fall has arrived. And yeah, some of you guys are all excited about that, yeah? Because football starts? Football starts today, today, like this weekend. I mean, like real football. <laughs> you don't care? Josh cares. Don't you, Josh? Yeah, Josh is playing against my team in fantasy football this weekend. There's only been one game played in the NFL already, and he's killing me. Josh, leave the room. Because... Because what he wants to do is say, there's more coming. It's like, not. So in light of that, um, how are you feeling about Colin Kaepernick these days? Nice hair. I, I wish. Yes, right? So, yeah, it's just, it's interesting. It's interesting how much how much drama and how much uh, response and reaction has happened with Colin Kaepernick. I'm not talking about the fact that he's not the number one starting quarterback for the Niners. He's a backup this year. Is that what has you all messed up? Not so much, right? We live in a crazy world. We live in a world where, where the actions of a backup quarterback can disrupt a whole nation. Such a weird time in our planet. Such a weird time in our country. I mean, there, and of course, there's, there's crazy stuff that goes on. And there's important stuff that's going on in our country and in our world. We, we're in the midst of, of, a, of a cultural journey called Black Lives Matter. And of course they matter. And then we're in a responsive time where we go, Blue Lives Matter. And I go, well, of course they matter. And, and blue states matter. And red states matter. And purple states matter. ISIS has been this horrific thing that's happened over the last three years or so, and they're on the run, but while they're on the run, they're wreaking havoc every place they run. Syria is a disaster. Turkey is very wobbly. uh, Russia is rattling its swords again and again and again. The UK is leaving Europe. I didn't know you could leave Europe. (laughs) 
You're still there, but they're leaving. France is now what seems like the epicenter or ground zero of current terrorist activity. Brazil impeached their president during the Summer Olympics. I'm like, could you not wait? Just wait. Right then. And of course, this week, North Korea tested another nuclear device. It's a weapon. And all of that is backdrop to what I perceive as the ugliest presidential campaign in my lifetime. It's a crazy world. We live in a crazy world. And that's, that's not news. That's every day. That's every day. We live with that all the time. But it's true. And in the midst of that, I hear Christians fretting. I hear people who are followers of Christ fretting about our country, worrying, concerned about our country with statements like, they're taking away our rights, or they're taking away our country. And I wonder against that backdrop, if we could look to Scripture today to find a prophetic word from Scripture. Prophetic in, this, in a biblical sense, in the sense that says this is God's word to us. Prophetic from a biblical perspective that says, can you get God's perspective on life in this planet, in this country today? Is there, does God have a perspective on it? And if God had a perspective on it, could you grasp it? Could I grasp it? Could I put myself into it? Because the problem with human beings is we all walk within our own little two-by-two-foot space, our own little two-by-two-foot bubble. We all have skin on, and our skin confines us to a certain perspective. I live in a certain perspective in this world. You live in a different perspective of this world. And as hard as it might be, how would it be possible for us to get to a spot where we actually looked at the world from God's perspective? Wouldn't that be helpful? I want to find a prophetic message today from a biblical perspective that leads to a biblical response. That leads us to say, God, how... From your word, how do you want me to respond to what goes on in this world? How do you want me to respond to what goes on in my country? How do you want me to respond to what goes on all around us? Is there a biblical response? And I believe there is. I would like us as a church to know this. I'd like us as individuals who are, especially those of us who are followers of Jesus, I would like us to know this that in a season of political turmoil, we serve a king. We serve a real king. We serve a real, live king. In a season of political turmoil, we serve a real, live king. In a season of political peace, we still serve a real, live king. And he has a kingdom. And that can change our perspective in this world. I want to read some scripture for you today. And I'm going to, I'm going to 
load you up on scripture today. It's a little bit different than my normal pattern of what I like to do when we talk together. I like to come to one passage of scripture and go, let's just talk through this one thing. Let's keep it in context. Let's make sure that we understand what this one passage is about. But I want to build a perspective for you from scripture over a breadth of scriptures today. And so if you have your copy of the Bible, you can pull it out or you can pull out your smartphone and look up version. You go to version, and then go to the section on the bottom that says more, and you click that, and then go to the section that says events. You'll find Lakeside Church right there. There's a whole set of, set of notes with all the scriptures we'll be talking about today, and that might be helpful to you. Or because there's going to be so many scriptures coming across, I'm just going to put them up on the screen too. So if you want to follow along with what's on the screen, that might be helpful to you as well. Let's start with this, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Here's a story that might be familiar to most of you. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. You know this one? We could do interactive, right? Yeah, so I know that. And I know some of you are like, hey, 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 I don't get that one. That's out of context. You, that's only a Christmas story. You shouldn't be telling that in September. We're not ready yet. But it's fascinating that from the time that Jesus was born, people have sought him out as king. These magi you've heard so much about every year at Christmas time, the wise men that came, they weren't even Jewish, but they came to Israel, the land of the Jews, to find the king of the Jews, and they wanted to worship him. You don't just honor the king, you worship the king, and from the time Jesus was born, people have been coming to find him so that they could worship him as king. I'm like those magi. I'm not, I'm not Jewish, but I worship, I serve a Jewish king. And for 2,000 years, people have been serving, worshiping this Jewish king. Jesus is our king, but he's always been different. He's not been usual. He's not been normal like a king that you might think of. Like there's a story in John chapter 12. It goes like this. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. I, that whole story, and I, some of you are like, Hey, you just went from one holiday to the next. Like, we just left Easter a few months ago. I know, but it's a great story, and I love the fact that when John writes this, he ends that little statement by saying, at first his disciples did not understand all this. little moment of self-reflection from John, one of his disciples, who at first didn't get all this. I love that, because there are times when I come to Scripture, I go, oh man, I didn't get all that the first time, or the second, or more. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. It's so fascinating. This is not what kings do. When a king in that generation would come into a city, it was because he conquered it or he was returning to his own city. In this case, it's Jesus coming to his own city, Jerusalem. 
And when a king would come into it, back to a city after he conquered a region or conquered another city or conquered the world, he'd come back to his own city and he always rode the greatest horse. Alexander the Great had this horse called Bucephalus. He was the greatest horse. And the king always would come into the city on the greatest horse. And if he didn't own the greatest horse, he would commandeer it from somebody else in his army or somebody that he defeated. He had the greatest horse. And Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a dinky donkey. Right? It's a donkey's colt. It's a baby donkey like Jesus' toes are dragging in the dirt while he's coming into Jerusalem on this little tiny donkey. Hey, hey, y'all, I'm the king. It's like, you do not look kingly. But he's always been different. He's not like the world's kings. He doesn't act like the world's kings. He doesn't come in like the world's kings. Yet he's king. Your king comes to you, seated on a donkey's colt. He's king. John 19 takes that story and runs with it. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So now we fast forwarded a week from the donkey episode to now Jesus is on trial before the governor, Pilate. Pilate's trying to let him go. He knows that Jesus has been arrested and handed over to him because the chief priests, the rulers, the Pharisees, they're all jealous of the popularity of this guy named Jesus. So he's trying desperately to set him free. And the chief priests, they know, oh, he's going to let him go. He's going to let him go. We can't have that. And so they, they pulled out their, their, I can't even say it, they pulled out their trump card, what they did. And so they, <laughs> sorry, that just came out. It's just They pull it out. They pull out their power play. They're like, oh, this guy, Jesus, he calls himself a king. If he calls himself a king, he's in the way of Caesar. See, there's never room for two kings. Never has been. Never will be. Notice when a presidential election comes along, we never elect a Democrat and a Republican. We never elect two We elect one, because there's never room for two kings. And so the chief priest said to Pilate, look, Jesus declares himself a king. That means he's putting himself in the way of Caesar. And at that time, Pilate decided that he had to crucify this man. Because now there was a conflict between this man and his own king. I don't know how the election is going to turn out in November. I have some opinions about what's going to happen on the day after the election. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth regardless of the outcome. But I'll tell you this, whoever wins the election will be sitting in the seat of Caesar. As far as our country goes, they will sit in the seat of Caesar. Really, kind of as far as the world goes, they will sit in the seat of Caesar. And we who are followers of Jesus must know this. There is never room for two kings. We serve one king. 
He's a real, live king. But he's always been a little different. His whole life was spent as an immigrant. His whole life. Can you imagine leaving the city of God to come to Bethlehem? We all have romanticized views of Bethlehem. It's this quaint, beautiful little village where the Messiah was born. It was a dusty backwater no place. And that's where the Messiah was born. Can you imagine leaving the city of God to come to that place? He lived his life as an immigrant. As a baby, as a toddler, he was a refugee. His parents fled a holocaust of young boys in Bethlehem because when the king of Israel, Herod, heard that the king of the Jews had been born in Bethlehem, he went and he wiped out all the two-year-old boys and younger because he didn't want this child to survive. And his parents found out about it, so they fled the country. They lived as refugees in Egypt. If you see pictures of children who are refugees from Syria today, that's the story of Jesus. If you see parents who are desperate to get their children out of the path of devastating war, that's the story of Jesus and his parents. He's a real-life king. And as a real-life king, he established a culture for his kingdom. He established a way of life for his kingdom. And so those who live in his kingdom, those who are subjects to him as king, we decide to follow after that culture. We decide to live in that culture. And the culture is set by the king, not by the subjects. And so it's interesting to note that this king lived a life of giving up his rights for others. That's what the story of Philippians 2 and the come down of Jesus is all about, giving up his rights. This king established a culture of putting others first before himself. He established a culture of loving his enemies, even the ones who would execute him, even those. He established a culture of speaking the truth, always speaking the truth, but always only in love. That's the culture of our kingdom. That's the culture of our king. He's a real life king, but he's really different. In fact, he was so different when he lived on this earth that his disciples kept an eye on him. They kept watching him because they couldn't figure him out. Like John wrote, his disciples didn't understand this at the time. And so they're watching him carefully to go, what's different about this man that we follow, this man that we love? What's different about him? And they kept their eye on him. And one of the things they noticed that was really different about Jesus was that he had this really amazing, intimate, intense relationship with God, whom he called his father. And he would talk to him all the time. And the disciples were so intrigued by this that they came to Jesus and they said, finally, Jesus, would you teach us to do that thing you do? You know, when you, when you pray and when you talk to your father, would you teach us to do that? Jesus said, I'll teach you. He goes, when you pray, pray this way. 
He didn't say pray these words over and over and over. He just said pray this way. Pray according to this pattern. Then he laid out a pattern for them. He said pray this. Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come. And your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. And give us today what we need today. And forgive us our debts just like we forgive our debtors. And don't lead us into temptation. But deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You know those words, right? There's an interesting little phrase in that prayer that Jesus gave to us, his followers, that describes a piece of what Jesus wants. The phrase is, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. For years, I have to tell you, for years, I looked at that prayer and I thought, oh, that's perfect. That's, I, I get it. That's one of those prayers like, Jesus, hurry up. Come back. It's a mess down here. We can't take it any longer. Your kingdom come. Come on. And there are plenty of places in the Bible that talk about that, but I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at in this particular prayer. He's saying, Lord, send your kingdom among us. May the culture of your kingdom be alive and well among us. May the way you lived your life be the way that we live our lives as members of your kingdom, as subjects of your kingdom. May your kingdom come. Which leads to a question for me, when God's kingdom comes, what will it look like? And when God's kingdom comes, will I like it? We have this really interesting assumption as followers of Jesus that we will enjoy heaven. I mean, don't you think that? Let's do interactive again. Do you think you're going to enjoy heaven? If you don't enjoy it now, you won't enjoy it then. See, that's the weird part. He says, pray this, your kingdom come. He's asking, may your kingdom come on this planet. But the way Jesus lived is his kingdom. And if we don't live like Jesus lived, then we're not going to like his kingdom when we get to heaven. He goes, I want you to practice it now. I want you to live it out now. It matters now. Why do black lives matter now? Because they matter to Jesus right now. Why do blue lives matter now? Because they matter to Jesus right now. Your kingdom come now among us. That's our prayer. And what will that look like? What will it look like if we engage it? The scriptures describe the culture. Matthew chapter 3. Verse 1, it says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Here's John the Baptist. His job description was to get ready for Jesus, get, ready, get everybody ready for the Messiah. So he comes in with a really simple message, two-part message. Repent, uh, uh, 
Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. Two things. First one is repentance. Repentance is a scary word. Nobody likes to think about a preacher standing up and going, repent. Freaks us out. But it really simply, it's it's just a word that means to change your thinking. And if you change your thinking, to change your behavior. At the Leadership Summit, one of our speakers gave me a great insight into repentance. It helped me a ton to understand how this works in my own life. He said, not all repentance is a 180. That was so helpful to me. Because sometimes, you know, when I come to John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. I'm like, well, repent. I mean, that's for the people that like really need to. I mean, I'm good. Ish. You know, I'm like, do I need to do a 180? I I already followed Jesus. But this guy goes, hey, not all repentance is a 180. If, if the track of Jesus, is, the, if the kingdom of Jesus is this direction, and somewhere during my day I got off five degrees, then I need to repent five degrees and come back onto Jesus' path. If I got off the path ten degrees, I need to come back ten degrees to Jesus' path. If I'm on a 180 away from Jesus, i got to do a 180 back toward him. You have to repent from where you are. You have to... Change your thinking from where you are, wherever, however far off Jesus' path you are. John came preaching a message of repentance, of changing your thinking, of changing your behavior. So that you get back on the track of the kingdom of heaven. He says, repent because the kingdom of God has come near. It's not like the kingdom of heaven is out there someday. Of course it is. Of course there's something beyond just this life. But it's now. The kingdom of God has come near. Now that message got John the Baptist in a lot of trouble. He went to jail for that message because he actually got in the face of a political leader in his generation, King Herod. And he said, King Herod, it's not right that you divorced your wife to marry your brother's wife. Track that one down. You're like, yeah, that's pretty bad. You shouldn't do that. And John the Baptist said that straight up to the king. He's like, you got in someone's political face. And the king put him in jail. And then some other things happened, and he took his head off. ISIS isn't the first one to cut people's heads off. The king of Israel did it at least once. Now John the Baptist is removed from the picture. And then it says this in Matthew chapter 4. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Hey, does that sound familiar? Have you heard that before? Jesus just picked up John's message. John's job description was to get people ready for Jesus. So he goes, hey, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then when Jesus came, he said the same thing. Change your thinking, change your behavior because the kingdom of heaven has come near. If there are people in a room who are followers of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has come near. It is here with us today. And Jesus starts that message by saying, repent, because he says, look, you may have got five degrees off the path. You may not be following the kingdom all the way. He goes, I want you to follow the kingdom all the way. Change your thinking, change your behavior. So that it matches the culture of the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of 
heaven has come near. What does it look like when it comes? We usually think of, like, of kings having power, right? The, the kingdom is about power. It's about shock and awe. Everybody loves shock and awe. As long as you're the one distributing it. You don't like it so much if it lands on you. We go, we go well, that's what the kingdom of heaven will be when Jesus comes back, man. It's going to be shock and awe. It's funny that Jesus describes it differently. When it actually gets lived out on this planet. Like Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I don't even want to be poor in spirit. I mean, what is poor in spirit? I don't want to be, I don't want to be, I don't want poverty to be the thing that, that describes my spirit. I mean, really? But Jesus goes, blessed. Blessed by God, happy are those who are poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is a poverty, there is a lack that is true of those who are members of the kingdom of heaven. We don't grasp for power in this world as members of the kingdom of heaven because that's not what the culture of heaven is like. It's another way of saying humility. It's another way of saying meekness. You know, in our value statement here at Lakeside, we, we say we love meekness. We, in, we wrote that intentionally because we, did, we didn't say it. We practice meekness or we are meek because we, we know that's hard to claim, but we certainly want to love it. We certainly want that to be true of us because that's true of the kingdom of heaven, meekness. Some people didn't like that message because they thought they had it all dialed in. They were, they were rich in spirit. So Jesus says this in Matthew 5, verse 20. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples who heard that, they're like, well, we don't understand that. Nobody's more righteous than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They're like the top drawer. Who could be more righteous than them? Jesus said, those who are poor in spirit, those who know they have a need, they will be more righteous than them. Those who humble themselves, they will be more righteous than them. And that surprised those people. Jesus surprised them again in Matthew 7, verse 21. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. A lot of people on the earth are all like, Lord, Lord, we got this thing, Lord, you and me, right? Lord, Lord. He goes, I'm sorry, have we met? We go, yeah, no, no, we, we've met, we prophesied in your name, and in, we cast out demons in your name, we performed miracles in your name, we did some really cool stuff in your name, Jesus. And he goes, I'm sorry, I never knew you.
because I never saw the kingdom of God in your life. I never saw the culture of the kingdom in your life. What does that, what does that culture look like? Matthew 19 says, Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and don't hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The kingdom of heaven belongs to children. Sometimes the disciples didn't get it. People were bringing children to Jesus, they're like, Get away, get away. The, the king doesn't have time for them. Jesus said, You guys don't understand. The kingdom of heaven belongs to people like these children. I'm like, oh, well, then what are children like? One thing that's true of children is they're powerless. They're powerless. And the smaller they are, the more powerless they are. Yet they are faith-filled. Children have a capacity to be faith-filled that we as adults don't have. Because we question and we think about it and we go, ah, we're skeptical. I don't know. Children are powerless but faith-filled. Jesus says, that's what my kingdom is like. Powerless but faith-filled. That's a mark of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 21 Verse 28, Jesus says this. He's talking to the Jewish leaders. He said, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, and he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. It's not about power. It's not about being right. It's about turning, changing our thinking, changing our behavior, and believing him. In John 18, verse 33, he tells us why. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked him, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. And yet, the kingdom of God has come near. It's in this world. It's just not of this world. It's not defined by this world. What Jesus is asking us to do is to live as expatriates of heaven. He's asking us to live as if our citizenship were in heaven, which Philippians says it is. 
He's asking us to live as expats of heaven. And what does that mean for us? It means turning. Turning our thinking, turning our behavior. When you come to repentance in the, in the gospel, there's always a repentance from something and a repentance to something. What do we repent from as followers of Christ in this world? I don't know, maybe, maybe because we have two kingdoms going on, competing kingdoms, maybe we need to repent from our reliance on our earthly kingdom. Maybe we need to turn our thinking from putting our faith and our hope and our love into this earthly kingdom. And in no way am I saying it's bad to be involved in politics. It's a legitimate pursuit like other pursuits in our world. But if our trust is in that, if our hope is in that, if our faith is in that, if our love is in that, maybe we need to turn our thinking from that to the kingdom of heaven and to the king of heaven who is here now so that our faith is in the king of heaven and that our hope is in the king of heaven and that we turn our love on our enemies. It's not that we shouldn't engage in this world. We absolutely must be engaged in this world. But we are called to behave like citizens of heaven in the midst of this world. And Jesus showed us the way. Jesus, I pray for us today. That's a lot to take in. That's a lot of rearranging our thinking. And so I pray for us today that you would lead us. We are not adequate for these things, as your scripture says. We're not adequate to understand them all. We're not adequate to engage them all or practice them all. But we pray for your grace in us that empowers us for them. I pray for my friends here, Lord, everyone in the room. We all come from different places. We're all at different stages in our journey with you. But I pray for every one of us that we would seek you out, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that we would shape our behavior to match who you are. And we would shape our thinking to match who you are. Lord, thank you. We love you. Amen.